Welcome back, and thanks for joining me once again. Today we continue our explorations of surfaces. Previously, we talked about spheres as the main focal point of surfaces, the most prevalent and simple surface that mathematicians study. And we also considered polyhedra, which were isotopic to these spheres. You can rubber sheet geometry, you can make rubber sheet geometric moves to make a sphere into polyhedra. We even closed the previous lecture by a beautiful result about fullerenes, where we said any object, any polyhedral shape that you get, made out of hexagons and pentagons, if every corner has three points meeting together, will always have exactly 12 pentagons. So a normal soccer ball has this property, golf balls have this property, and fullerenes have this property. Well, in this lecture, we want to move beyond the sphere. We want to motivate it by considering the shape of our own Earth. Now, we all know that the Earth is a sphere, but we ask two questions. Question number one, what possible shapes could the Earth have been had it not been a sphere? And question number two, how would we know what the shape of the Earth was if we were not allowed to leave it? You know, today, we can leave the Earth through satellites and space shuttles and view its shape from out of the Earth itself. But what if we were stuck on the Earth, like Columbus or Magellan, and must find its shape from within the Earth's perspective? Would we be able to guess the shape of the Earth based on being on the Earth itself, if it was not a sphere? But first, what do we mean when we say surface? Last time we considered surface and related it to polyhedral approximations of spheres. But this time we want to step back and get a bigger picture of what surfaces are really about. A surface must look the same at every point. It must locally around the point that you're standing at on the surface look like you're standing on the plane. This is called the neighborhood condition. Here we see examples of objects which fail the surface condition. Let's take a look at three specific examples. Consider the disk. It's just a circle with the surface filled in between the circle to give us this disk. Now this object feels like a surface to us. At every point on this disk, if you look close enough, it looks like it's a plane, a whole 360 degrees of movement. But however, if you go to points on the boundary of this disk, you notice that it fails this condition. At the boundary of a disk, if you look around, it doesn't look like an entire plane, but only part of the plane. What about this other example, where we see two spheres touching at a point, a wedge of two spheres. We see that this is not a surface again. At every point, life looks fantastic. At every point, you have a whole plane's worth of information around that point locally, until you get to the point where the two spheres meet, at that wedge itself. If you look around this point, if you're standing at the point looking around, you notice that the region around you doesn't look like a plane, but it looks more than a plane. It looks like two planes meeting at a point. You have more than 360 degrees of information. The disk, the boundary points on the disk, had too little, and this has too much. What about this other example where we take a sphere and attach just an interval, a little line segment, touching at a point on the sphere? 
Again, the points on the sphere look great until you get to the point at this intersection. Here, if you look around, you have 360 degrees of movement on the sphere, and you have this extra degree of direction you can travel. In fact, any point on this interval, you notice, is a one-dimensional piece of movement. You don't have a whole plane's worth of possibilities. So these are examples of things that aren't surfaces. So what is an example of something that is a surface? Well, look at this picture. Here we have a complicated, stretched-out object, and it turns out that this is a surface. In fact, it's isotopic to the sphere. I can perform rubber sheet geometry and try to make it as sphere-like as I can. A surface must also satisfy another condition. Not only must it have this neighborhood condition, where around you, you have 360 degrees of movement, but the surface, according to the way we want to define it today, must also be finite in area. So although the plane is a two-dimensional surface, because at every point in the plane, it of course looks like part of the plane, and this happens to be probably the most popular surface used in geometry in high school and college, it fails to satisfy our condition of a surface. We want our surface to be finite in area, and a plane is too big for us to handle right now. It has infinite area. It goes on forever. So here's some examples of surfaces that do satisfy this condition. A sphere is a beautiful surface. It's finite in area, and at every point on the sphere, you have a whole 360 degrees worth of freedom. Another example is a surf of a surface is something called a torus. A torus is just the boundary of a donut. It's just this ring of an infinitely thin sheet that's surrounding this donut. Remember, there's nothing inside it. It's just the shell of this donut. And this satisfies the condition also. It clearly has finite area because I can hold the torus in my hand. And it's a surface because at every point we have a whole 360 degrees worth of freedom, no matter where I'm standing on this torus. Well, now that we have an understanding of surfaces, what do we mean by surfaces being equivalent? Remember, every time we introduce a new concept, we want to understand mathematically what equivalence means. In knots, we talked about equivalence as being isotopic. You can stretch and pull, but you cannot cut and you cannot glue. Well, we can use the same definition for surfaces. We say that two surfaces can be equivalent up to isotopy, which means we have this rubber sheet geometry with us. We call these isotopic surfaces. Let's take a look at some examples of isotopic surfaces. Notice here that there's going to be no cutting or tearing. Here are some examples of things that are isotopic to spheres. I can take an example of the sphere and stretch it using rubber sheet geometry to get this example or this other one. And they're all equivalent surfaces under isotopy. Well, what about a surface which has, say, three holes, something that looks like a triple donut? Well, I can take this, I can put my fingers through the center hole and stretch it. And notice I get this surface here in the middle. Or I can take the original surface and pull it in three different directions. Again, no cutting or tearing. And I get this third object, and they're all equivalent under this concept of rubber sheet geometry or isotopy. Notice that two knots are equivalent if they're isotopic to one another. The same kind of definition is what we used for knots, and we want to use it for a surface. But now I want to show you something that's truly remarkable. I want to show you how powerful isotopy is on a surface by looking at this demonstration of a double torus, uh, a surface with two holes like a torus. 
and see what it does. It's called the clothesline trick. So let's take a look. The power of isotopy that we have. What I want to do is I want to take a clothesline and put one hole of my, of my two punctured torus here, my two hole torus, just put my one hole here. What I want to convince you of is just by moving this through rubber sheet geometry, just by isotopy, I can also take my other hole and put it in through the ring without taking it out of the ring. In other words, I'm going to put one hole through this, through this rod and just by moving it around, I'm going to put this other hole here using isotopy. Let's try this. So the first thing I do is I keep the rod fixed. I deform things. This is just Play-Doh, so I'm able to deform as much as I can. I can deform things to look in a rubber sheet geometric way. I'm just flipping it around on the other side. And now I'm going to stretch this part that's the center line on the left, and I'm going to swing over this other part to the right. And let's see what happens. I'm just stretching my Play-Doh. No amazing results yet. And here I've just stretched it. Great. But now I'm just going to do more deformations by squishing in this Play-Doh. This is my stretch or compress, but again, no tear or cut. So I'm compressing it. As you can see, I'm compressing it even more. I'm compressing it even more. It's great. And notice what I have. I have both of my loops through this rod. What used to have one loop through the rod now has both of them through the rod just by this concept of rubber, street, rubber sheet geometry. So this tells me that this geometry seems extremely powerful. So how powerful is this? How powerful is isotopy when we talk about it on a surface rather than on knots? Can we take the torus and using isotopy make it into the sphere? Can we take this torus and just stretching and pulling, can we get rid of that hole in the middle? Well, our gut says no. Our gut says somehow that's instinctive. You have to tear the torus itself to get rid of that hole. But, but look at this powerful demonstration we had of, of something that intuitively you would think was not possible. Taking this one loop of this doubled hole torus and putting both loops in there. It seems we can get away with a lot of stuff in this surface isotopy. And it also seems that we're having the same kind of issues we're having with knots. We're trying to find out which objects are the same. Is the torus the same as the sphere? And which objects are different? And if we had a hard time telling knots apart based on isotopy, surfaces are going to be much harder. They're two-dimensional objects. So thus, a new concept of equivalence is needed. Now, we create a new equivalence called homeomorphism, meaning similarity of form. Remember, our previous equivalence was isotopy, the lens we, wished we used to look at surfaces and knots, which is rubber sheet. But now, homeomorphism, this definition of equivalence, can be defined as follows. Two surfaces, surface one and surface two, are homeomorphic if I can cut surface one into pieces, pull the surface apart based on these cuts, manipulate each piece I want up to, home, up to isotopy, and then glue the pieces exactly the way I cut them along the same seams. If I can take my first surface, 
cut it open into pieces, do whatever I want with each piece, and then glue it back exactly the same way I cut along the same seams, and get surface two, then I say that surface one and surface two are homeomorphic. Now, this homeomorphism is a weaker notion of equivalence. Remember, in isotopy, we are not allowed to cut and glue, but here, you are given that ability. But you aren't given too much freedom, you're not given too much power, because although we can cut and glue, we have to re-glue exactly the same way we cut it. So your freedom, although more than isotopy, is limited. So how, how weak is homeomorphism in telling things apart? Well, under homeomorphism, all knots are the same. Why? Because I can take a knot, I can cut it at any point I want, and then I'm just going to do isotopy and untangle the knot, and now I'm going to re-glue it again and get that unknot. I'm going to re-glue the same place I cut it, that's all my rule is, right? As long as I glue back the way I cut. So thus I can take any knot, and using this concept of homeomorphism, I can make it into the unknot. So all knots, according to homeomorphism, are the same. Thus, this is not very exciting in one dimension. So that's why we stuck to the concept of isotopy. But as we will see, this is extremely useful in 2D. Since we have a more complicated object to study, the two-dimensional surface, we will need a weaker notion of equivalence to tell things apart. But what does homeomorphism actually measure? We know what isotopy measures. It's measuring up to rubber sheet pulling. We have an intuition for that. But what does this cutting and re-gluing actually do for me? Which surfaces are equivalent and what is it trying to say? Well, to understand this, we need to consider the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic. Let me explain. Extrinsic is based on what your world looks like if you're an outside viewer, if you could leave your world. To us, my surface is an extrinsic way of thinking about it. An isotopy is sensitive to this. So if I have a surface, if I pull it and stretch it, from an extrinsic viewpoint, I see how that's changing. It's not changing that much. But let's consider it from an intrinsic perspective. Intrinsic is based on what your world would look like if you lived on the surface. Now if I take an object and perform a homeomorphic change, if I cut, rearrange, and then re-glue the same way I cut, how would my world look like from an outside perspective? my world would look drastically different. A knot, which was quite complicated, would extrinsically all of a sudden become the unknot. My world has completely changed from an extrinsic perspective. But if I do a homeomorphism move, then if I cut and make it into the unknot, how has my world changed intrinsically? Well, if I lived on the knot, if I, my whole world was the knot itself, then from an intrinsic perspective, what would once be knotted from an intrinsic perspective, I would just be able to walk around the entire circle, whether it was knotted or whether it was unknotted. It would be the same thing. So isotopy measures worlds the way you would look at if you left the world. But homeomorphism measures worlds the way you would look at if you lived in the world. Because the cutting and the gluing, although it looks like you're shattering the world and manipulating it, at the end of the day, since you have to glue the same way you cut it, what would once be apart would then be put back together identically. So this is the difference between homeomorphism and isotopy. Thus, isotopy is a deformation in the extrinsic world, whereas homeomorphism is a deformation in the intrinsic world. 
So again we ask, what possible shapes can the Earth have been? Recall we ask a surface to satisfy the finiteness and the neighborhood condition. So a sphere is a possibility. A torus is another possible shape that the Earth could have been. We call this a surface of genus 1, since it has one hole. And this concept of hole of a torus is called a genus in math. Now, we can take two tori, two different toruses, we call tori's plural, cut out a hole, say a small disc in each one of them, and glue the boundaries of them together to get a surface of genus 2. And when we get the surface of genus 2, this is exactly like the addition of knots. Notice how we snipped a little piece of each of my strand of knots and connected it up? In the similar way, we can take little pieces of my surfaces, two tori, torus 1 and another torus 2, and cut these pieces glued together and get a new one. And in this process, we can cut another ring of my genus 2 surface, attach another torus to it, get a genus 3 surface, and we can continue this process of getting higher and higher genera, higher and higher genus surfaces. But again, we are left with two questions. Are we actually getting new surfaces as we glue these tori together? Or are they somehow the same under homeomorphism? It looks like we're building things with higher and higher genus, we are, but is there a way under homeomorphism I can cut, rearrange, and magically get the sphere? Or maybe everything just magically becomes the torus? How do I know I'm actually getting something different? And if they are different, how do we know it's genus? How do we know it's genus if we look at it intrinsically? In other words, if you have a genus 1 surface and a genus 2 surface, can you tell by living in the worlds themselves, either in this world or in this world, which surface you're living in? Now both of these questions get answered by Euler, the same person who gave us the Euler's formula last time. The power of Euler appears again in the world of surfaces, not just in the world of polyhedron. Our motivation is inflating a polyhedron from the last lecture and making it look like the sphere. So we see that V, the number of vertices, E, the number of edges, and F, the number of faces, are actually based on the topology of the sphere, not the geometry of the polyhedra itself. Thus, for a given surface S, along with a partition of cutting the surface into regions. Now the surface S can have as many holes or genera as you want. So you can take a surface of genus 4 or a surface of genus 7. It doesn't matter. We're going to cut the surface into regions. Each region is made up of vertices, edges, and this one nice connected face. Given this, we define this mathematical number called the Euler characteristic of a partition of a surface. So if somebody gives you a surface and somebody tells you how to cut the surface, a partition of the surface, we create something called the Euler characteristic, which is the number of vertices minus the number of edges plus the number of faces of this partition. We're not talking about spheres anymore. It's of any surface possible. Now it's a remarkable result which generalizes our ideas from the polyhedron case that the Euler characteristic of any surface does not depend on the partition you pick. In other words, if you are given a genus 4 surface, no matter how you cut it up, the number of vertices minus the number of edges 
plus the number of faces will always remain the same. The Euler characteristic is something that belongs to the surface itself and not to the partition of the surface. Consider two different triangulations of a surface. Let's call it triangulation T1 and triangulation T2. And I want to present to you a rough proof of why this has to be true. Why Euler's characteristic, this Euler characteristic we came up with, does not depend on the triangulations, but it's built into the surface itself. The first thing I want to do is I want to overlay these two triangulations on top of each other and build a new object called T3. We can build this new triangulation, which contains both my original triangulation T1 and my second triangulation T2, overlaying it and adding extra edges to make sure that this new object is made up of triangles itself. What I want to convince you of is I'm going to build this new triangulation T3 from T1, my original triangulation, and using a four-step process. Now at each step, I want to show you that the Euler characteristic isn't really changing. And eventually I want to start at T1 and build my object called T3. First thing I do is I take my triangulation T1 and I look at all the extra vertices from T2. Remember, triangulation T3 is made up of T1 and T2 put together. I take out all my vertices from T2 that happens to intersect on edges of T1. I throw those in there. Now, every vertex I throw, which intersects an edge, if I put that vertex, my vertex number increases, but my edge gets split into two pieces, so my edge number increases. So vertices minus edges, since they're opposite signs, it cancels out beautifully. The second thing I do is, now I add in the extra vertices that I have, which didn't happen to land perfectly along these edges. Now when I do this, not only do I want to add an extra vertex that lands in one of these faces, but I want to throw in an edge that connects it from a previous vertex. Remember, a vertex can't just land in the middle of nowhere without an edge touching it. So I throw in that vertex, and I throw in that, an edge, some edge that you want to connect to that vertex. What have I done? I've increased my vertex count by one for each new vertex I throw in, but I've increased my edge count by one. So vertices go up, edges go up. Perfect. It's right on the mark that V minus E plus F hasn't changed yet. The third thing I do is now I add in the rest of the edges of my T2 triangulation. I throw in those edges. Now notice, all the new edges I throw in don't come with any new vertices, because I already have all my vertices that happen to land on edges, and all my vertices that happen to land in the middle of faces. So I don't have any new vertices to add in, so I'm only going to be adding extra edges, connecting previously existing vertices. Now if I do this, if I add every extra edge, it cuts a face that I have into two pieces. So thus, my edges increase each one I add, but my face count increases each one I add. Edges go up, faces go up, V minus E plus F stays perfect. And the last thing I need to do is I need to throw in any extra edges I have to form a triangulation of T3. And when I do this, every face, which isn't a triangle already, I can throw in extra edges to make it into a triangulation. But by throwing extra edges in, no new vertices, I increase my edge count, but each edge I throw in cuts a face into two pieces. So I increase my face count. So thus, I have started at T1, my original triangulation, 
and I've built this new triangulation called T3, which is made up of T1 and T2 superimposed, along with any extra edges needed to make it into a perfect triangulation. So I started at T1, made it to T3, and I showed that the Euler characteristic here, the vertices, edges, and faces, is the same as the Euler characteristic here, in terms of vertices minus edges plus faces. But I could have started it not just at T1, I could have started it at T2 and built T3 the exact same way. Thus, the Euler characteristic of the T1 partition and the Euler characteristic of the T2 partition are both equivalent to the Euler characteristic of T3, which means they must be equivalent to each other. Thus, the Euler characteristic of T1 and T2 have the same value. The vertices, edges, and faces, when you look at V minus E plus F, does not depend on the partition. It depends on the surface itself. So what does this mean for us? It means that the Euler characteristic is fundamentally related to the surface. It is a homeomorphic invariant. Two surfaces are homeomorphic if we can cut one up and re-glue the same way. Notice that when you cut things up and re-glue, you haven't changed the Euler characteristic. Why not? Because when you cut it up and re-glue, you put things back exactly the way you found them. And only when you look at it from the outside, from the extrinsic perspective, do things look twisted or changed. But intrinsically, it hasn't changed. Let's look at some consequences for this thing. Consider the Euler characteristic of the sphere. The Euler characteristic of the sphere, as you know here, only depends on its partition. So let's cut up the sphere in any way we want. I'm going to cut it up like this, where I have three triangles on top and three in the bottom. And here I have five vertices, nine edges, six faces. So V minus E plus F is two. Perfect. It doesn't matter how I cut it up. I just proved it depends on the object itself. So no matter how you cut up the sphere, in terms of vertices, edges, and faces, you will always get two. In fact, this is Euler's formula. When we talked about partitioning polyhedron, V minus E plus F is two is exactly this. But my friends, we can do so much more. Consider the Euler characteristic of a torus. Here, I'm gonna partition it this way. And if I partition it along this way, cutting up the torus like this, I get 12 vertices, 24 edges, and 12 faces. And the Euler characteristic becomes zero. Now, if you choose to cut up the torus you have in your own way, you will also see it doesn't depend on partition. It depends on the surface itself. Now, what about for higher genus surfaces? Well, we can keep trying this for other things by designing something that partitions our surface, but there's a beautiful trick we can do. Let's take a look. We noted that a genus 2 surface comes from two tori glued together. So the Euler characteristic of the genus 2 surface must be based on the two tori and the gluing. Well, the Euler characteristic of my first torus is zero, of my second torus is zero. But when I cut out those two triangles and I glue it, what happens? Well, I've taken two triangles out, the insides of the triangles out, so I've lost two faces. But I've also identified what I used to have, three vertices and three vertices, six total vertices. By gluing, I only have three left over. So I've lost three vertices in the process. Similarly, I used to have six edges, and by gluing, I've lost three edges. So by doing this, gluing this addition of tori, I've lost two faces, three vertices, and three edges. So my net loss for my Euler characteristic is a negative two which means the Euler characteristic of my genus 2 surface is 0 from the first torus, 0 from the second torus, plus a negative 2. 
So my Euler characteristic total for my genus 2 surface is negative 2. And we can continue this pattern, adding more and more of these tori handles to my surface. As I increase the value of genus, I keep adding these tori, and every time I do this trick, I keep losing negative 2 for my gluing. So I have a formula for relating Euler characteristic and genus. The Euler characteristic of a genus G surface is 2 minus 2G. When the genus is 0, when there is nothing, I get the exact example of the Euler characteristic being 2, my sphere. And when the genus is 1, I get the Euler characteristic is 0. When my genus is 2, I get Euler characteristic is negative 2. It's a beautiful formula that works because of the way we built these surfaces up. Thus, we can find out which surface we live in, one of the questions I asked before, by simply calculating its Euler characteristic. If you live in a surface and without leaving the surface, finding a space shuttle or a satellite to understand, if you're in the surface, you simply need to partition the surface, which you can do living in it, and then you could just count the vertices, edges, and faces, plug it into this formula, and you can find the genus of the world that you live in. How beautiful. Let me close by looking at a genus of a very complicated structure. The genus of this structure is something that I cannot figure out just by looking at it. Is it does it have a couple of holes that are going through, and is it three, is it one? Well, here's what we do. The first thing we do is we just count, since it's already partitioned into pieces, the number of vertices, edges, and faces. In this particular piece, I see I have 24 vertices, 42 edges, and 16 faces. So if I add these values together according to my Euler characteristic formula, V minus E plus F, I get that the Euler characteristic is negative 4. But I know from my previous formula, the Euler characteristic and genus are related. It's 2 minus 2G, two which means the genus of the surface must have been genus 2. So we have answered both of our questions from the beginning. We can tell surfaces apart by their Euler characteristic, and we can find out the genus, a global result of our surface, from just local data. Even without leaving the world you live in, we can find out its genus. What a remarkable thing we can do. Just intrinsically, we can understand this concept using this idea of homeomorphism, a new concept of equivalence of surfaces. Next time, we continue our adventures of surfaces by looking at more complicated examples now that we have built a foundation to stand on. Stay tuned.